we, we have a question, sort of. It's something you forgot to mention <laughs> the other night. You forgot to mention sugar when you talked about how to postpone your funeral. Well, that's because I was eating a pie. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to incriminate myself. Right. <laughs> Thank you. I'll, okay. I'll go ahead and answer okay. this one. <laughs> okay, so here's the thing. As soon as we finished the talk last night, like three people came up to me and said, well, what about sugar? <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I figured I would do a little bit of study. And, and to be fair, sugar is one of those things that's a hot topic. You remember back in the day when there was this, uh, everything was about fat? Um, there was two groups of, of uh, scientists that were researching what's causing heart disease. And uh, the ones that talked about fat got the biggest, um, the biggest uh, loudspeaker. And so people were focusing on that. If you filled up that card, by the way, just hold it up and, and the ushers will come by and pick it up. So, um, but, but at the same time, there was sugar. Somebody was talking about sugar and exploring and studying sugar, and they were saying, hey, sugar causes problems with heart disease and diabetes and all these other things. So, to be fair, there's a problem. But here's the thing. If you go studying in the Bible, you're not going to find the Bible saying, thou shalt not eat sugar. It doesn't say it. In fact, 104 times, the Bible says nothing about sugar. <laughs> it doesn't, the word doesn't even appear, actually. But it does say the word sweet, and sweet's kind of sugary, right? So, so sweet, 104 times it says sweet, and, uh, and most of those times it's something about sweet wine. So it's talking about unfermented wine. And, and it's, it's usually something that's a, a, a gift God is giving or a promise He's making for Israel. So that's, that's not really incriminating against sugar. So I thought, let me look up honey, because honey is kind of a biblical analog to sugar, right? And so I look up honey, and, uh, and most of the time it's saying something is as sweet as honey, and it's a good thing. It's a positive thing. And uh, so if you're going to try to make a case against sugar from the Bible, you're going to just come up short, because the Bible doesn't say thou shalt not eat sugar. Um, but that, just because the Bible doesn't say don't do it, or doesn't tell you not to do it, um, the, that doesn't mean that we should be doing it. So I was looking and, and thinking about this a bit, and the reality is that what we have today is quite a bit different than what they had in the Bible times. The refined sugars, the um, sodas, the, all the refined uh, products that we have, I mean, just all the stuff that we have today, we literally have tons more sugar accessible to each one of us than they had back in the Bible times. So probably it just wasn't, it didn't rise to a problem level in those days. Uh, but they, today it's wise to, to uh, keep it in mind. But, but let's just be clear that the Bible has good things to say about honey. It has good things to, be, to say about all these other things that God made. Like, like, have you ever had a date? Dried dates were a big thing in the Bible. And if you were to say absolutely no sugar, then you better not eat a date because God put lots of sugar into that thing. And, and a, a really ripe mango. I hear that unless you're in like the Philippines or Africa or somewhere where they grow naturally and you eat one that's ripe on the tree, that you really haven't had a mango yet. My friend who was a missionary there in Africa said that he would take them off the tree and he'd cut them up with his knife. And he says, you're really not eating a mango unless it's dripping off your elbows. <laughs> so delicious, so full of sugar, right? But God designed them that way. And what we have is something that's separated from God's design. We, we um, take sugar cane, which God designed, and we refine the sugar out of it. I'm just 
how much sugar cane do you think you could eat? If you just grabbed it from the, the guys that are selling it as you drive down the road in Peru, <laughs> I did this once, um, <laughs> how, much, how much sugar cane could you eat? They, they sell them in little, little chunks. They're about that long and, and about, you know, half an inch around or something like that. And, and you, you just kind of chew on them, and it's, it's sweet. But, but how much of that could you eat? Maybe five sticks, ten sticks of, of sugar cane? Yeah. And, and, and ten sticks, you're going to be saying, oh, I've had enough. I'm done with that. But you know, ten sticks of sugar cane is maybe one or two sugar cubes. When we refine it, we concentrate it quite a lot. And so, I mean, you could have things like sugar beets, which um, would be really sweet if you just pounded them up and, and you know, cooked out some sugar. It'd be great. But, but um, when, you, when you dip into your sugar bowl, um, a teaspoon of, of sugar is about one sugar beet. <laughs> Maybe two teaspoons, right? Depends on, on how concentrated it is. So we, what we do is we take what God gave us, we refine it, and then we dump it into, into stuff. And Western culture has lots of sugar all around. And you know this. There's candy, there's soft drinks, there's, um, well, I mean, you can even find it, flavored yogurts have a ton of sugar in them, fruit drinks, um, cereals, cookies, candies, cakes, any processed food, uh, look at the, um, look at the ingredients on ketchup, and one of the first ingredients is, well, high fructose corn syrup, but it's the same thing, right, sugar, Um, and and then you've got canned soups, I love, I love those, uh, I'm just, Kellogg, no, it's not Kellogg's. Campbell's. (laughs) Campbell's. <laughs> this, the name left my mind. I love Campbell's soup, but, but if you read Campbell's soup, really high on that list is uh, sugar, which doesn't seem... It's, I never put sugar in soup. Do you? But somehow, they, they seem to get it everywhere. In the Harvard Health Journal, they say too much added sugar can be one of the greatest threats to cardiovascular disease. And the problem that they, they point to is, is the refined sugar. Um, so, in 2014, the Journal of American Medical Association Internal Medicine Magazine, that's a long name, um, a report from Dr. <laughs> so, the, the, the letters are H-U, just so you know. It's a report from a guy named Dr. Who. <laughs> just to be clear, his name is Who. And, and he had a team, and he did a 15-year study on sugar, and he found that people that, that consume 17 to 21 percent of their calories from added sugar have a 38% increase in uh, uh, increased risk of dying from cardiovascular disease compared with those who ate 8% um, of their added or of their calories in, in a day from added sugar. So what we're finding is that it's not so much that sugar is bad, it's that you can get too much of a good thing. A date isn't bad but you concentrate it and you pile it together and you eat a bunch of candy and uh, there's some problems. And uh, it seems like the subject really is about moderation rather than content. Uh, the Bible puts it this way in Proverbs twenty-five sixteen: Have you found honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you be filled with it and vomit. <laughs> so, the Bible suggests there's, there's a, a place for honey, there's a place for sugar, but only eat as much as you need. Don't go overboard because it can cause a problem. And the word that we use, um, you can find it several places in Timothy and, and uh, or Titus rather, and, and uh, I think Galatians has it. And the word is temperance. And it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Temperance. It means to be able to choose what you do or what you eat. Temperance. So temperance says, um, now some people would say temperance says moderation in 
in everything, okay, but, but I would suggest that that's not true. Um, a little bit of death is a big problem. We don't want to have just a little bit of death. It's not a good idea. And there's a lot of things that are a problem that, that, that are bad for us. So we don't want to say temperance is moderation in all things. I think the Bible would suggest temperance is moderation in what is good and abstinence from what is bad. So say no to the things that hurt and don't go overboard to the things that help. I mean, you can have too much water. Water's a good thing, but drink three gallons in one sitting and you know what you're going to have? you're going to have a hospital visit and you might die because too much water is a problem and too much of good things are still a problem. So temperance is an important subject, an important characteristic that God invites Christians to have. Hopefully that answers the question, and I haven't stepped on too many toes while I did it. Um, If you think that sugar is evil and we should never ever eat sugar, that's okay. I'm sorry for you, but um, <laughs> it's okay if you feel that way. That's, there's no problem with that. If you feel like I have just stepped on your toes because I said that you should moderate your sugar, then we can have a conversation about that afterwards, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk about how that works. Anyway, so tonight, Return of the Woman, um, it's an exciting subject. We get to talk about something that um, I've been looking forward to discussing. What happens after this 1,260-year period where the beast is reigning on the earth and the woman is driven into the wilderness? What happens after that? What we've talked about so far is, is this uh, period of time, 2,300 years, that ends in the eight, mid-1800s, and we've talked about this period of time, 1,260 years, that ends in the late 1700s, 1798, and we've seen some really cool things that happened around those times, the, the earthquake and the falling of the stars and the moon turning, uh, or the, the dark day and the, the moon turning to blood, all of those things that the Bible predicted would happen, happen right on time as the end of time period in earth's history is, uh, is, is coming about. And uh, so we see some exciting stuff happening there, and we talked about the beast side of it, and we even mentioned something about the deadly wound will be healed at some point, and so a little bit of, you know, we need that woo music going on. You know, we've talked about some of that stuff, and it's exciting, but what about the woman? What happens to this woman who's driven to the wilderness? So tonight we get to talk about that, and I just want to say um, that when we do talk about that in just a minute, um, I want to do this with quite a bit of humility and, and n- no arrogance. So please forgive me if it ever comes across in my confidence in sharing this conviction that I have that I am arrogant in, in saying it. But we're going to explore this and, and figure it out. So work with me as we do that, and I think we're going to have um, a good study tonight. Tomorrow, not tomorrow, Friday night, we get to study the Mark of the Beast, a subject that has confused a lot of people for a lot of time. And I've heard so many subjects or so many ideas about what the mark of the beast is. It's um, how many of you have heard when that guy in Florida got in a um, an RFID chip that was about the size of a grain of, of rice implanted into his wrist so he could unlock his car or his or his um, home door and and check in at work and things like that. How many of you heard that and thought, oh, mark of the beast? Nobody. Wow. Well, I heard a lot about it when that time when that happened. That was probably two thousand. 10 or something like this, and everybody was, seemed to be talking about it on the news, and, and then um, I've been hearing about all kinds of interesting things being implanted into people, and, and I've heard recently, just this, I think a week or two ago, somebody said, hey, look at this, people are trying to, to do this certain implant into people's brains, and, um, and, and this must be connected to this end-time scenario, the mark of the beast. Well, what is it? Is it something implanted? Is it a barcode? Is it uh, um, the 666 number? 
And uh, if you find it on your grocery receipt, then you're in big trouble. Like, what exactly is the Mark of the Beast? We're going we're gonna to explore that on Friday night. Saturday morning at 10.45, we get to um, explore something that's kind of an add-on to the subject we're starting tonight. Um, and, and it's this question in Revelation 14 uh, and Revelation 12. It talks about this group of people at the end of time that follow the Lamb wherever He goes, and included in their description is that they keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. And so we want to explore what is that testimony of Jesus? What's that look like? And why does this um, group of people have it? And we get to do that in the morning on Saturday. Um, and just FYI, um, we're going to be up at the church Saturday morning, um, but uh, it'll be plenty of room, so no, no problem. Then uh, Saturday night, we're going to do the last night on earth. Oops, I'm behind on my slides. No, I'm not behind on my slides. There it is. Okay. The last night on earth, and uh, we get to wrap things up. Now, I, what I don't want to tell you is that... Um, that, that we're, we're done for good, our last hurrah, um, uh, because I think we need to keep studying the Bible. Maybe not five nights a week. <laughs> um, uh, I, I don't think I can handle another month of that, but, <laughs> but we want to keep studying the Bible. And uh, so we're going to have some, some options, and I'll tell you about that on Saturday night. But um, last night on earth, I get to tell you a little bit of my story and how God has led me. And, uh, and then we get to talk a little bit about what God's plan is for you, because God does have a plan. He, he's not just watching the world turn from His spot in the sky and, uh, and twiddling His thumbs. He's engaged, and He's been working in your life and in your heart long before you got here, and He has a plan long after you leave here. So, we want to talk a little bit about that on, on Saturday night. But tonight, the return of the woman. Now, we've been studying some of the big themes in Bible prophecy. Revelation 12, um, we get this, this woman and the dragon and the war in heaven. And Revelation 13, we, we have this, this beast uh, that comes up out of the water. And on uh, Friday night, we get to talk about the other beast that comes from the land. And then uh, we've got Revelation 14, this group of people that are standing on Mount Zion and follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And then while we haven't explored it very much, we'll talk about it tonight, there are these, um, these messages, these angels that share some really important messages for the world at the end of time. And so we've kind of begun to explore those things, and we've, and we've spent a lot of time on them because what, when you understand those three chapters, everything else in the rest of the book of Revelation kind of fits into place. Um, and if you don't understand those things, all the other pieces in the book of Revelation just feel like they're jigsaw puzzle pieces that are scattered across the floor and maybe into five different puzzles, and you don't know which is which. So these three chapters really bring the whole book of Revelation together. And so tonight we're going to explore more of that. Now, if you remember in Revelation 13, we described this beast that comes up out of the the sea, and it had these characteristics. Remember, how many heads did it have? Seven. Good. Seven heads. And how many horns? Ten. Now, what we looked at is we compared this to Daniel chapter 7, and we found that there were um, four beasts in Daniel 7, and those four beasts had seven heads because one of them had four heads, right? So, we had four beasts and three extra heads. Um, So, we made that comparison, and what we found is those four beasts represented Babylon, uh, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome, and then with the ten horns, the divisions of Rome when Rome broke up in 476 A.D., and, and so we found that connection, and we compared that to what we find in, in Revelation, and we found the same beasts, the bear, the, um, the leopard, uh, the lion, the, the, the terrible beast, right? 
So we got seven heads in Revelation, we got ten horns in Revelation, and we have all these characteristics. But what we found is that this, this um, little horn in Daniel 7 came up, and there is this combination power that happens where Rome divides into these ten kingdoms, and then a different kind of power arises. And if you remember, that different kind of power was a church state, a, a church that ruled, and, uh, and it ended up uh, destroying three of those tribes and, uh, and then kind of ruling over the rest of the seven that were left. And, uh, and so we kind of identified some of those features in that 1260-year period that this beast would reign, and we found that it started to reign in 538 when the last of those three, um, Visigoths, Ostrogoths, and the Hurili were destroyed, and Justinian had given it its power. So 538 was the beginning of that 1,260-year period. And we found at the end in 1798 that this church-state thing, it, it was um, broken right? The Pope is taken from power. The, the church's hand uh, hold on all of these different uh, kingdoms was, was reduced because their, their, their power was removed from congr- their congresses and their, um, their land was taken away and things like this by Napoleon. So, we see that the, the history actually tracks right along with prophecy in that story of Revelation chapter 13. Um, but what we didn't explore was what about that woman in Revelation 12? What happens in the 1260 years while she's in the wilderness, and then what happens after? And so that's what we get to explore tonight. And let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, as we look at this subject, we want to be faithful to your word. And I just want to say, please anoint my lips. Give me eloquence. Give me uh, humility. Uh, but help me to share with confidence the things that you have in your word. And I pray that you would give us hearts to say, Lord Jesus, wherever you call, we will follow. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Lieutenant Hiru Onada uh, was uh, part of the Imperial Japanese Army, and he was quite a remarkable soldier. His commanding officer one day told him, Hiru, I need you to go and do a special task, a special mission. You're the most trustworthy man I know, and I'm hoping you're going to find this, this assignment to your liking. Yes, sir, whatever you say, sir, I'll do it. And so he says, Lieutenant, there's just one important condition, never surrender. Until I tell you to, don't give up. Push and push and push until, until I tell you to give, give up. Stay on the job. Will you stay on the job? Yes, sir, I will, he says. And uh, the assignment was in uh, 1944 to go to the island of the Philippines. And he, te- and he said, secure the Philippines for Japan. That was his job. The only problem was that Hiru, um, he got his small team together and uh, arrives at the Philippines, and it's already occupied by the, um, by the allied forces. And so he can't conquer them. There's way too many of them for him. So he, he resorts to guerrilla warfare, and he goes out into the, into the, the woods and the mountains, and, and he, he does these raids, and his, his team will go in, and they'll take some, uh, steal some stuff, they'll bomb something, they'll mess up an airfield, they'll, um, you know, kind of skirmishes here and there, but just kind of going in, coming back um, to the mountains, going in, coming back to the mountains. Until one day, of course, the, the, the war ended not too long after he started this, but he didn't know that. And uh, there was some, some planes that dropped leaflets just saying, hey, by the way, everybody, 
um, there's no more war. And then they dropped some specific leaflets that said, Lieutenant um, Onada, the, the, um, the war is over, right? In fact, um, it was uh, this one guy found one of these pamphlets while he was going through the, the forest, and he brought it to the lieutenant. And he says, um, Lieutenant, look, it, this says that the war ended in August 15. We can go home. And, uh, and lieutenant said, um, don't you understand that this is a trick from the enemy. The enemy wants us to give up. If the war was over, my commanding officer would have told me so. We're not going to give up. We will never surrender until he tells us that we are done. So they went on fighting the, the Second World War for a couple weeks, which turned into a few months, which turned into 30 years. 30 years, one by one over the next decade, Onada's men um, either left and, and, and uh, abandoned his army or they died in the jungle. And by 1972, Hiru Onada was the only one left. And that's when a Japanese college student went on a camping trip in the Philippines and discovered a man who was still fighting World War II in 1972. Mr. I, I don't think you understand. The war's been over for almost 30 years, he said. Hiru didn't believe it. He said, if the war was over, my commander would have told me so. And this student was convicted he should do something to help this man. And so he went to Japan, found the man's commanding officer who happened to be working at a bookshop um, at the time. And he said, Hiru is still fighting this war. And the commander was just astounded. So he, he hops on a plane and goes to, uh, to the Philippines, finds Hiru, and, and he tells him, you can quit. We're, the war is over. And so he, he was willing to lay down his arms and surrender at that point. 1972, 30 years after the war was over. And, I mean, it's an incredible story. I mean, this guy is so diligent in, in the, the tasks that he was given. And I think some of us might uh, be a little judgmental of him, uh, but I'd like to learn a lesson from him. You see, um, the, the Christian church has uh, been in a battle, a battle between truth and error since the Garden of Eden. If you remember, Adam and Eve had a bit of information about God. He's their creator. He loves them, etc., but Satan, he, he, through the serpent at the tree, introduces doubt. And he says, did God really say? And that's this big theme throughout all of history. Did God really say? And, and he, the devil really would like us to see something that's not true as though it is, and something that's true as though it's not. He wants to just mix us up. And so for all of history, we have been in a war of ideas, a war for truth. And throughout history, people have stood for truth and said, yes to God, I want to follow you, and people have followed Satan. And it's really just been those two camps, from Cain and Abel on, two groups of people, those who follow the lamb and those who follow the dragon, those who stand for truth and those who, well, accept whatever comes their way that seems right. And I think that, that um, today we have a little bit different scenario in the Christian church. There is a general idea that um, ah, this truth thing isn't that big of a deal. I'm sure there's different ideas, but, but um, most of it is, well, you know, maybe, maybe the battle isn't, maybe the battle's done. Maybe we've stopped, or we need to stop fighting this battle for truth. Um, 
And I think that's actually a really good tactic. I mean, think about it. If you can, like, like Hiru, when he gets those little papers that says the war is over, I think Satan really wants us to see this war as though it's over. He wants us to think, oh, it's all good. You can give up. You don't have to fight anymore. You can surrender. But, but a surrender during war isn't a good plan. You don't surrender until you've won, right? You don't stop until the war is, is over. And you, you might look back and you say, oh, you know, in the early days of the church when they were fighting Rome and, uh, and the church had to stand up against paganism, that was a problem. They needed to stand for truth back then. Or maybe during the Reformation when the church was so, so bad the, that we needed to rise up and we need to say, there's, a, there's a, a problem here, let's go back to God's Word. And those are times we needed to fight. But, uh, but now, I mean, it seems like we should just be getting along, don't you think? All of us Christians, we should just we should just be happy with each other. I mean, are we all following the same Jesus? And on the surface, that sounds pretty good because Christians should get along. And in fact, the Bible says that they will know we're Christians by our love for each other. So there's something, there's something true about that. Um, but there's also something, there's also a problem because that voice is still saying, did God really say? The, the battle for truth isn't actually over. In Proverbs 14, the Bible says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death, which means that, that the consequences of truth and error, the lamb and the dragon, the consequences is life-threatening. And if you've only got two options, and it's a 50-50 gamble about which one's which, your life is on the line about getting this right. And I'm not trying to say that just to be sensational. I think it's, it's a genuine reality. And, and because we have this clear prophecy in Revelation 13, I think that, that we, should, um, we should recognize the battle isn't done until the commander, Jesus Christ, comes in glory and says, it is finished. Until that point, we need to stand and, and have our minds engaged in this process to study God's Word and to, to know truth um, and to understand what, who God is and what He wants for us. And if we don't, then we're going to be, we're going to be led astray. Revelation 13.3 predicts, I saw one of his heads. This is that beast um, in, in the, the one that's uh, ruling for 1260 years. I saw one of his heads as if it were wounded to death. And that happened in 1798. But then it says, and his deadly wound was healed and all the world wondered after the beast. If you've got the dragon, and you remember this beast is controlled by the dragon. If you've got the dragon and you've got the lamb, which one do you want to follow? Do you want to wonder after the beast or do you want to follow after Jesus, the lamb? According to the Bible, the devil's program has not come to a head yet. It is not complete. He's got an, another battle to fight, uh, maybe a lot of more battles to fight, which means that we can't stop. We need to be like Hiru and say, until my commander says so, we're going to still fight. We will never surrender. And here's what's really interesting. The world is preparing right now to accept the devil's crowning act of deception. 
Over the last few decades, you may be aware that there's this uh, a movement in the world to bring all Christians together under the same banner. I mean, maybe we have different names, but, you know, it's non-denominationalism and interdenominationalism and who cares denominationalism um, and, and what's a denominationalism. So, there's all kinds of different things that we could call it, but ecumenism is kind of the overarching um, idea. Um, ecumenism just means coming together, Right? Um, uh, back a, a, a few years ago, I saw a movement of um, evangelical Christians um, that were sitting down with an uh, 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 Anglican priest um, and, and the Pope and having a conversation. And they all agreed, we're all on the same team. Now, back uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago, those same three groups of people would have been um, in a boxing ring together and, and exchanging blows. And, and you might think that it's a good thing for everybody to get together and say, we're all on the same team. We're all following Jesus Christ. Except, except when we look at the, the situation in the Christian world, we have not all always been following Christ, have we? Sometimes, as, as we look at the Christian church, we have had Christians who are Christian in name, but in their life, they live a pagan life. And, and they've been following Jesus in name, but in practice, they've been stepping on the very things Jesus has held dear. So, if that's the case, then we can't just say, as long as we're hugging each other, everything is all good. We might not be hugging the right people, right? Nothing wrong with people. I'm not saying anything about any particular person, but we just have to be careful. Right now, there's some 30,000 different denominations. 30, is that what Jesus had in mind? Let me just ask this. Is that what Jesus had in mind? No. His intention was for unity. In fact, he says in Ephesians 4, 4 and 5, Paul says this, there is one body, one spirit, and body, by, by the way, he's talking about the Christian body, the, um, the group of people that follow Jesus. There is one body, one spirit, even as you are called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. How many? One. Not, not 50, not 30,000, just one church that God has. And from the beginning, that's all there was. There was one church, and, and it was the, the same group of people, whether they were in Antioch or Philippi or Jerusalem or Rome, the same group of people all over the world, and they were the people that followed Jesus. And there was some problems. Just read 1 Corinthians, and you'll be scratching your head and saying, oh boy, I'm glad I'm not part of that church. But, but they were still the church, right? They were still the one church, and Paul made it clear to them that they were still the one church. And still today, 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the favorite chapters in the Bible, the chapter about love. And he's writing that to a church that you and I would be like, oh boy. And then things kind of happened. And the question is, how in the world did we end up with all these denominations? How did we end up with all these splinters? Um, now, if I were to try to if I were to try to give you all of the details, we would be here for another month, so we're not going to do that. Um, but the, sh the short version is, and if you've been here long enough, you're going to know this, the short version is that we compromised. The way that we diver um, left this one church, one baptism, one faith, one spirit thing is we compromised. We said, you know what, it's all right. Um, 
That, that, that's an interesting idea. I, I kind of like that one too. Sure. I mean, Zeus can become Peter. No big deal. We'll just change the name of that statue. Um, and and we, did, we did all kinds of interesting things. We brought people in but kept their belief system. We brought all these new ideas, new ideas about death, about worship, about, um, you know, even new days of worship to suit the Roman tastes. We did all kinds of stuff like that. History is clear. Our old pagan belief systems began invading the church. And as a result, the church began to splinter. And how it worked is there was people that were wanting to follow the Bible, people that were wanting to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They had the character of God written in their hearts, and they were going to stand for truth though the heavens fall. And you know what happened to them? They got pushed aside by the majority, pushed aside and pushed out of the church. They, they got pushed to the margins and pushed to the edges. And over time, it happened again and again and again. This group of people said, wait a second, but the Bible says, and they, the, the, the majority pushed them out. But the Bible says, and the majority pushed them out. And these people stood for truth all over the place. This fragmentation isn't God's plan. God wants unity. But unity is not something that should be gained at the expense of compromise. Jesus, speaking directly to his Father, prayed for unity in John 17, verses 20 and 21. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they also may be one, as you are one, um, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, so this is the original desire of Jesus. Did you catch it? He wants them to be one, but, but there's a there, there's an uh, implication of this oneness. The oneness in the Christian church should be the oneness of the Son and the Father, one in purpose, one in truth, right? There's, there's not just a, a oneness of let's just all agree to disagree and ignore all our differences. That's not exactly where Jesus is inviting us to. And then, unfortunately, when the world looks in on the Christian church, what they see is considerable division. And that's not what God intended. We are not united, and we aren't one church. That's the reality that we face today. The, the Bible's, um, the, the word, God's plan is clear. The intention was that there would be one church, one faith, and that's still what God wants today. The, this division is not His plan. It's not His goal. It's not where He was going. He wants His church to be united around truth. And first of all, that truth is Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But secondly, that truth is the truth that Jesus shares. He told His disciples, teach everybody those things that I have commanded you. And, and then all the rest of Scripture points us to a God. Who is, who is Jesus? Who is this Messiah? Who, what is His plan? Where is He going with that? And all of those Scriptures are part of His truth. God's Word is truth. And we pointed out earlier that God's commands are truth. When we look at the Ten Commandments, that moral law that, that shows His character, who He is, it is the same from all eternity to all eternity, just like God's character is the same from all eternity past to all eternity future, because He says, I am God, I do not change. His character is steadfast, and so is His law. His law is truth. 
So when we look at this, God's goal is for His church to be united, but it's to be united in truth. In uh, 1 Timothy, it says, the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. There's something important about this, this idea. Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. In other words, set them apart as holy. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. This is God's Bible, the whole thing. And what have we been doing in this seminar? Have we been sitting on one, one verse and building doctrines off of silly ideas from one verse that is hard to understand? No, we've been, we've been taking apart hard to understand verses by comparing Scripture with Scripture and by looking at context. And we've been building an understanding of, of a, an amazing, beautiful, loving God that cares about you and me by comparing the entire word. And, and I'm not afraid to look at any part of it. If you've got something I've missed, please let me know and we will explore it. By the way, I got a question last night that I didn't answer tonight. I do plan on answering it on Friday night. So if you ask that question, I, I'm not ignoring you. I just didn't have enough time to do two questions tonight. So sanctify them by their truth. Your word is truth. And I believe, and, and I think this is a, a very strong conviction of mine, that when we follow God's word, when we explore God's word, we're going to end up in the same place. Our, our understanding will come to the same conclusion. The Bible doesn't allow for 15 different interpretations of the same thing. It's not just this random, you know, roll the dice and see what you get from the Bible kind of a thing. The Bible has truth in it. And if we study with a sincere heart, willing to be led by the Spirit, we're going to end up in the same place together. And in that, we're going to end up with unity. So just look at the Revelation chapter 14. The Bible describes this. And remember this group of people that are standing on Mount Zion with the Lamb, and it says that uh, they, they preach this message, the result, like verses 1 through 5 describe this group of people, and then verse 6 um, and, and 7 introduces this, um, this message that they share. And it says this, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters." This is God's final movement of people. This is his, his children at the end of time, the people that follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And they have one final united message to share to the world. And it says, to fear God, which is not a be afraid of God message, it's a honor and respect and be in awe of God. So fear God, give glory to His name, and then it, it says, worship Him who made the Creator God. This is a, a final movement a movement that God initiates, ultimately it's the one place that you can find God's people because they're following the Lamb. Remember, there's only two groups of people. Whatever you call yourself, whether, whether you're a, um, a, a this denomination or that denomination or no denomination at all, whatever you call yourself, there's really only two groups of people. There's the people that say, Jesus, where are you going? I want to be there too. And there's a the group of people that say, Oh, look at this designer man-made religion. I really like that. Let me, let me follow my own ideas, or let me follow Jim Jones's ideas, or some other famous or fantastic preacher. Please, nobody ever say that they're following Jason's ideas, because I don't have any good ones. It's the Bible. If it's me, let's look at the Bible, but please don't look at me. And, and this final movement of God, ultimately, it's the only place you're going to find God's people because this is made up of the people that follow the Lamb. 
And the lamb's not going several different places. He's got one direction. But unfortunately, there is an alternative. And I mentioned this already, but, but let's just explore it for a minute. There is one group of people that follow the lamb, and there is an alternative, a global, worldwide movement for unity. In Revelation chapter 13, it says that this dragon pushes for unity. Now, the, the unified movement the dragon pushes for um, is a little different. The, the lamb uses truth. He's honest, he's trustworthy, he's truthful, but uh, the dragon, not so much. Deceit, um, coercion, force, um, he, he loves compromise, ambition, deception, man-made religion. He doesn't, he doesn't mind where you go, except he doesn't want you following the lamb. And so there's, there's these two movements, and Revelation 13 says this one worldwide movement is going to be following the dragon, and the other is going to be following the Lamb. There's either Revelation 13 or Revelation 14. There's the dragon, and there's the Lamb. For me, I'd like to be following the Lamb. Does that seem like a good idea to you? (laughs) Revelation 14, 4 and 5 describe these people. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men. I love that it says they're redeemed. These are not the perfect among men. These are the redeemed. That means you and I can be part of this group. These were redeemed among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and in their mouth was found how much deceit? Just a little bit of, of error, right? I mean, you have, to get, you have to have things seasoned right, don't you? No, it says no deceit, no error, no lies, for they are without fault before the throne of God. This is a movement of truth. This is a movement of uh, of um, honesty. And so the question becomes, where can we find this group of people that follow the Lamb wherever He goes? Where can we find them? Are they just some um, theoretical thing that's going to happen at the end of time? Or is, can we track this movement of people from the time of the end period, you know, in the 1800s, right? Can we track what happens after the 1260-year uh, the period ends? Is it possible to find this group of people that follow the Lamb? Now, the Bible does… Okay, let me just address this. Organized religion has kind of fallen out of fad. I mean, it used to be that you'd say, well, I am a Lutheran, or I am a Methodist, or I am a this, or I am a that. And you know, today, I find uh, there's a pastor in Clark Fork, um, and uh, he's a Methodist pastor. But if if you just really hold his feet to the fire, you know what he'll tell you? It doesn't really matter to him. That's just the church that he's hired by. He could pastor any church. He doesn't mind. And I go to the Baptist church, and you know what they say? Well, yeah, there's, there's true things. We want to teach God's Word, but, um, you know, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. And I'm not making that up. I've talked to the Baptist pastor down in Clark Fork and the Methodist pastor down in Clark Fork, and that's basically what they've shared with me. So, um, like I said, I'm not making it up. Um, and, and when you look at, at uh, organized religion today, many people, they don't want to be part of a, of a church. They don't want to be part of a denomination because, well, there's all kinds of problems with denominations and organizations, and everyone has their little issues, right? And right now, especially, denominations are going through tons of turmoil. What do you do about things like gay marriage? What do you do about um, issues of um, 
all, all kinds of social problems that people face and that and the denominations organizationally are trying to figure out. But just because there are problems with denominations and the fad is not in to be part of a denomination doesn't mean that God's church shouldn't be organized. In the beginning, the disciples organized the church. Remember that time when they were trying to give out uh, goods and, and it was uh, not really working out very well? And the Greek Christians were saying, hey, you're leaving us out. Well, what did they do? They got together, they prayed, and they, and they organized the church. And they created a system of deacons, and the deacons began to pass things out and be more equitable about how they shared the, the resources that the church had. And then the church organized missionaries and sent missionaries out. And we started churches in, the, in, in Philippi, and we started churches in, in Turkey, and we started churches in, in um, Africa. We started churches all the way over in the UK. And, and it's because the church organized itself that it was able to accomplish so much for God. And in, in just a generation's time, the gospel went to the whole world. So organization is an essential component. There are no such thing, there is no such thing as a, a loner Christian. Christians are part of a body. Or if you talk to Peter, Christians are part of a building. Each one of us a block in the walls, each one of us with a purpose, but together we make the temple of God. Together we make the body of Christ. And that's the idea the Bible gives all over the place. We are united in purpose, each one with a different skill or talent or calling or mission or or passion. And because we each have something different that we can contribute, one is the eye in the body, another is the hand, each one contributes to the whole purpose that God has called the church to. Organization is essential. So, again, the question, where in the world do we find this movement, these people? And the answer we can find in Revelation chapter 12. So let's, remember we, we did this with uh, the beast in chapter 13. We put all these characteristics down. We're going to do the same thing and figure out what is this uh, woman in Revelation 12 and where can we find it in real life. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet. On her head a garland of 12 stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now uh, to be clear, these, all these little points are, are important. We're not going to have time to dive into every one of them. Um, but if you look up the sun in the Bible and the moon and the, the 12 stars, you're going to find some really cool things that ground this church. Because remember in, in Bible prophecy, a woman is a church. Ground this church in all of the history of God's people from the Garden of Eden all the way down. The 12 stars would be, of course, the the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. There's a a tie to both the old and the new. And uh, so lots of good stuff here, but but who is that child? This woman is about to give birth to a child. Who's that child? Jesus. And so we find this woman at the juxtaposition of the Old Testament Israelite church and the New Testament Christians of all all, um, stripes and nationalities, right? And, And she ends up bridging this gap, bears the, the, the Messiah, and then the Messiah is caught up. And do you remember that, that uh, part where it says that the dragon wanted to eat the baby, destroy it? But he didn't. The, the baby is caught up to God, and that's what happened to Jesus. He, he was killed on the cross, but raised from the dead, and then rose to heaven. So where does the dragon turn its attention? To God's people, Now, notice in Genesis 3.15, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And the dragon, the devil, the, ser- the, the serpent, Satan, all of those things apply. He got angry. And so instead of being able to, to tackle Jesus, he says, I'm going to put my focus on all of God's people. Back in the Garden of Eden, you had this, this battle between truth and error. Abel wanted to follow the lamb. Cain decided he was going to do it himself, that designer man-made religion. And, and Satan knew that he was going to be crushed, and so he wanted to prevent that seed thing from happening. And he knew Abel was God's, God's guy, and so he has Cain, instigates his anger, and he has Cain kill Abel. And he thought he'd done the right thing and that, that uh, things would work out in his favor, but of course God had an alternative plan, and, uh, and that didn't work out. But, but he worked on, through Cain and all of his, his descendants, he worked in the world to try to just eliminate anybody who would follow the Lamb. And so you get to the time of Noah, and in Genesis 6, the Bible says that every intent of the heart was evil continually. That was the result of Satan's work. And Satan thought, ha, I've got this. God has no opportunity anymore. But there was, there was a, a, just a few people that God said... I don't find anything wrong with them. And he asked them to make him an ark. And for 120 years, Noah built that ark and he preached. And for 120 years, people listened and people laughed and and mocked and scorned. And in the end, he and his family got in that boat. But God had a remnant of somebody that would take that that promise of the seed in Genesis and, and bring it to fruition. And so you get... God's people going through the flood, following the Lamb. But uh, remember that, that moment, 120 years of preaching happened and people are mocking and scoffing and saying, ah, it's not going to happen, you silly guy. But then the rain comes down and the fountains of waters from the deep break up and spew things out into the air. And I'm sure there's volcanoes and all kinds of crazy stuff happening. Suddenly it got real. And the truth is, there's going to be a time when it's going to get real again. And the Bible says, the first time God destroyed the world with water, what's He going to destroy the world with next time? With fire. Yeah, we learned that the other night. There is going to be a time of, right now is a time of decision, and there's going to be a time when God ends those decisions. The 120 years in Noah's day is a period of time right now. We've studied it before. We are in the time of the end. We are at the the fraying edges of of history, and our future is not long in front of us. How long? I don't know. Months? Years? I don't know. The Bible doesn't give us that specific, but we know that we're, we're not thousands of years away from Jesus' return. What Noah experienced, we may very well experience sometime soon. And today people are laughing at the idea that, people are, that Jesus is going to come again. And they might mock at you and me for believing that he's coming again. Um, but, but there's going to be a moment when that laughter stops and when they see all the signs that the Bible has described taking place. God has always had a faithful remnant, an Abel, a Noah, and he's going to have a faithful remnant at the end of time as well. 
So it didn't work out with Noah. Um, Noah got through. The seed thing continues as a promise. And so uh, God, he, or, um, Satan, he pushes people into this whole Babel thing, right? So they build this tower and defy God and say, we're going to do it ourselves. We don't believe in your promise. We are going to make our own designer religion, and we're going we're gonna to save ourselves. And Babylon, the kingdom of religious compromise, is made. And the devil's laughing because Babylon is very influential, so influential that we still talk about Babylon today, and it still influences our science and our thinking today. Babylon became, Babel became Babylon, became Babylon the Great. Hmm. The devil seems to be winning, and God searches the hearts of humans and says, is there anybody, do I have anybody left? Jesus put it this way about the end of time. He said that God will be looking on the earth and saying, will I find faith? Will there be anybody that believes in me? And the answer was yes, Abraham. And when God called Abraham to go to a place he, wouldn't, he didn't know, like would he be able to plant stuff there? Would he have the same um, opportunities there? He had no idea, but, but Abraham said, I'll go. And he took his family and he left. And through Abraham, we have this great multitude of people that come out of it. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob's name turned to Israel, and Israel ends up having these 12 sons, which end up being the 12 tribes of Israel, which end up being a great nation of Israelites. And it's through this nation of Israelites, this people, this remnant that, that God keeps for himself, that Jesus comes. And Jesus comes to save all mankind. Abraham came out of Babel. That Ur of the Chaldeas is just right next to Babel. He came out, and God had a place for him to go, a promised land. And look at this in Revelation 18.1. After these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lighted with his glory. Notice this is a global message. This is something that the whole earth hears. And and this is what he says in verses 2 to 4. He cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not her plagues. Do you see what the Bible is saying? In the last days, God's people are in Babylon, and he calls them out. He says, come out. Because, and they're going to come out because God's people are going to say, I don't want to compromise. I want truth. I want to stand for what the Bible says is right. And I want to follow Jesus. And, and just for comparison, what did Abraham do? When God said go, the Bible says that Abraham, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, um, that, that was the thing that, that tied Abraham to God. If God had said, please go, and Abraham had said, no thanks, I no, don't really want to, would we ever have read about him in the Bible? No. It's because he said yes to God and came out that Abraham became the father of many nations. In Revelation 14, God's people are said to have the faith of Jesus and keep the commandments of God. 
So as it, as it turns out, God is looking for the same thing today that he was looking back in Abraham's day. He was looking for somebody who would say, okay, God, sure, I'll do that. I'll follow you. And they would say yes to God. In Deuteronomy 11, God expected the same thing of Israel. He said, therefore, you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments always. The, remember what Jesus said? If you love me, keep my commandments. This expectation is, is um, just a part of any relationship. If you love me, follow me. And especially the relationship with the creator God, the one who made us. He expected Israel to have the same heart that Abraham had. And that put him, I mean, and, and God put them rather, in the crossroads of the ancient world. If you wanted to get anywhere, you had to go through Israel. The property that God gave Israel was the centerpiece of movement, which meant that as people went through Israel, they would see the worship of the God of heaven. As people went um, traveling through and trading, they would get the stories of the, the Abraham and the stories of, of Egypt and coming out of Egypt, and all of those things would, would start to become a worldwide uh, message, something that would impact the whole world. But let me just ask you this. Did they do that? No, they kind of messed that one up, didn't they? They, they hid their religion, and they, they covered it from other people. And then, and then when that wasn't um, good for them anymore, they decided to adopt other people's religions, and they mixed the religion of God with the religion of pagans, and that was a big problem. God's people had the job of preparing the world for Jesus' first coming, you know, the people at the end of time have the same job to prepare the world for Jesus' coming. The devil saw it very clearly what God was doing, and so he worked to destroy it, to obscure truth or to mix truth. And, and you know, the, the devil is doing the exact same thing today. He knows that there's a people that are preparing for Jesus' second coming, and he doesn't want it to happen. And he does everything he can to obscure it or to mix it with other things. He led the people of Abraham to disobey God. Listen to what Nehemiah 9:16 says. But they and our fathers acted proudly, hardening their necks, and they did not heed your commandments. This is what it boils down to. Israel was breaking God's commandments. The book of Jeremiah tells us that they refused to keep the Sabbath, and so God allowed Nebuchadnezzar to come and sack the temple and burn it, burn the city down. And it's as, as if what God was saying was, if you don't want me then I'll let you have what you seem to want, Babylon. I'm not going to force you to be my people. If you don't want me, that's okay. And honestly, the same thing is true tonight. There's no way God is going to ever force any of us to, to follow him. It just doesn't work that way. You follow God because you love him not because you're being twisted, you know, your arm is, is uh, being pulled behind your back or anything like that. God wants you to follow him just because you love him. So Israel goes into Babylonian captivity, and for more than a generation, they, they sit around there in, in Babylon, and finally they came, come out. Well, some of them come out. They come out of Babylon, and God calls that group of people that come out, about 50,000 of them, he called them the remnant of Israel. And they go back to Jerusalem, and in Micah 5, 7, it says, Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. And so God raises up this remnant, this group of people that are going to carry his message to the world again. And they, they 
build the temple again, and they rebuild this, the city, and uh, they have this new opportunity. And before Babylon, they were convinced that paganism was a good idea, and, uh, and now they know it's a bad idea, and so they, they, they protect God's law. But you know what the devil loves? Anything that's going to mess us up. He doesn't care if it's paganism or tradition. And so the, the, the church of God, Israel, they, they obscure God's beautiful character with traditions to try to keep them, try to keep anybody from breaking any of God's laws. And, and so they've buried it under so much tradition that when Jesus comes, he has to dig through this pile of rubble to try to show the beauty of God's truth. The tradition became the most important thing in their religion, 600 extra regulations. You couldn't wipe the mud off of your feet on on Sabbath on the the corner of your house because you'd be said to have have been stuccoing your house, and that would have been work. Nobody was breaking the Sabbath, but it became such a resentful thing. Who wanted it? that Sabbath thing. That was such hardness on people's lives. It was a drudgery that they had set on it. The very God who spoke the commandments at Sinai came in person and said, you got it wrong. Let me show you what I meant. And listen to what he says in Mark 7 verse 9. He said to them, all too well you reject the commandments of God that you may keep your traditions. And so, from one side it was paganism, from the other side it's traditions. The devil doesn't care what obscures the truth of God's Word, just as long as we're not paying attention and, and being ready for Jesus to come. God says that there will be a people, and in Jesus' day that was 12, 12 disciples, and then another 70 or so that followed Him. Um, 12 disciples, though, that followed the Lamb wherever He went. Just look in, in the story when Jesus was just baptized. John sees Jesus walking, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you know, a couple of his disciples were like, hey, we want to follow him. Is, is that all right, John? And, and John was like, yeah, he must increase, I must decrease. And they go and they follow Jesus, and they never stop following Jesus for their whole life. Do you know what the Bible calls that tiny New Testament church? It calls them the remnant. In Romans chapter 11, even so then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. At every critical junction in history, God has a remnant, a people that say, I will follow the Lamb wherever He goes. And of course, the devil saw what was happening, and he tried to put roadblocks in the path of the Christians. And you find it there in Revelation 12, 13. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. He, he put all this pressure on the early church. And you can see the wrath of the early Roman pagan empire. They just poured it onto this church. And these poor people were tortured and dismembered and burned and crucified. Twelve of the original disciples, only one of them died a natural death. And that was after they tried to boil the guy, which is very unnatural, by the way. They, they died of terrible deaths. Um, Peter was captured and tossed in the Mamertine prison in the city of Rome. And after he lived there, a horrible existence in this dark, damp cell underground, they finally let him out and they put him to death on a cross. And when they took him to the place where, where he would die, um, the Christian tradition says that Peter saw what was about to happen and he was horrified, not because he would die on a cross, but because Jesus died on a cross and he didn't feel like he was worthy to. 
And so they, they put him upside down and hung him on the cross upside down. Paul was arrested, brought to the city of Rome. They couldn't crucify him because he's a Roman citizen, so they took him to the end of this road, um, the, um, the Abbey of the Three Fountains stands there today. Um, oh, I thought I had the name of the road but there, but anyway, they took him to the end of this, this road and they cut his head off. That was the end of Paul. And then you've got James thrown from a building and then his head smashed in with a club. Thomas was impaled with a spear in India. Andrew was crucified on an X-shaped cross in the British Isles. Every one of the disciples died a martyr's death except for John. And I think God prevented them from boiling John because God wanted us to have the book of Revelation. And it was after that attempt to boil him that he put him on, that, that, that Rome put him on the island of Patmos. And on the island of Patmos, God gave him this vision that we know today as the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The devil tried to stomp out the church. He did have everything he could to silence the voice of God's church. He failed, though, because force can never conquer love. In every chapter of history, God has always had a faithful remnant. And the big question right now is whether you will be part of God's last day remnant or not. Do you want to follow the lamb wherever he goes? Or do you want to follow the dragon? Those are your options. And, and I want to tell you this, God loves you so much, he's hoping you'll say yes to him. The first century remnant, the early Christian church, quickly became a mighty force across uh, the Roman Empire, and the devil was failing, so he decided to go a different direction. Just like he did with the, the Israelites after Babylon, he changes tactics, and he says, well, fine, if you can't beat them, then join them, exactly. And the devil moves right into the Christian church so he could change it from the inside. And you have this supposedly Christian emperor that converts, not really, um, and... and ends up doing some pretty wild things. And we've, we've seen, and they, they should have seen this coming because they should have been reading Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation 13. Um, but um, over time, this Roman version of Christianity grew and it became the force that the rest of the world had to reckon with. They started doing things their way. And just a few years after Constantine's supposed conversion, he, he put this law out there. On the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and the people residing in the cities rest and let all the workshops be closed. By the way, Constantine's favorite god was the, the sun god, the Roman sun god. So when you, when you uh, see this law, it's not really surprising, except that not very many years later, the church put out a similar law, which suggests that over 300 years after Jesus, Christians were still keeping the Sabbath, still honoring God's law and following him with all their hearts. And it's shortly after this moment in history that we get that dark period of history, that 1260-year reign of the beast of Revelation 13. And now life is very difficult for people who want to live by the Word of God. Uh, the church, apparently, the, the, the um, visible church, ends up being the, the people that follow the dragon. And so the people who want to follow the lamb have to hide, have to do it in secret. And you've got, you've got these two churches, the pure church, the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes, and then you've got this corrupt church, this messed up version. And, and this is something the Bible predicted as well. 
In Revelation chapter 17, it says, I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. What beast in Revelation have we seen with seven heads and ten horns? It was the beast in Revelation 13 that came up out of the sea. She, now a woman, sits on this beast. Um, but this woman that sits on this scarlet beast isn't, isn't like the woman in Revelation 12. Remember, the woman in Revelation 12 was clothed with, with a white robe. And Jesus promises you and I that He will give us His white robe of righteousness as a wedding garment so we can enter the wedding feast of the Lamb. And she was clothed with a garland of 12 stars, the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles, right? She has the, the sun as, as her, um, as her uh, light, and Jesus is called the Son of Righteousness, the Son of God and the Son of Man. So you have this pure church. It says that, that um, in Revelation 14 that God's people are virgins, right? They've not been corrupted by false, false teachings. But here in, in this one, in Revelation 17, 4, it says, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. Um, it's the kind of thing that you put on in the morning when you're putting on your makeup, right? You, you, you make all those all those uh, adjust- adjustments to make sure that you present yourself well, but except this one is a little bit different. It says that she is holding in her hand a cup of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. So we're talking about uh, a harlot, right? It says upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great. And we've got now a connection from this woman, a church, because women in Bible prophecy represent a church. We've got a connection from this woman all the way back to the confusion of the Tower of Babel and into Babylon and, and, and now into this, well, into this uh, dark ages of the Christian church. And it says further on her head is this name that says the mother of harlots and the abomination of the earth. Now, let's just let this sink in for a minute. This is a woman, a church, the Bible calls this church Babylon, the mother of harlots, which suggests that, that it's not just one individual, that there are other harlots too. There are others that follow her example. And the, the Bible makes it really clear who this is. It says, and here, in the mind, um, and here is the mind which hath wisdom, the seven heads or seven mountains on which the woman sits. Does the church... Does this world have a church that sits on seven hills? Revelation 17, 18 um, continues to clarify that by saying that this, the woman is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Was there a, a religious city that ruled over the empires of Western Europe? Absolutely. That city is the seven-hilled city of Rome, and specifically the city Vatican City, and that church is the Church of Rome. First Peter 5, all scholars would agree that he's referring to Babylon, and, and he says that um, there is an, he calls, uh, sorry, he says that uh, Rome is Babylon, and when he says Babylon, everybody agrees that he's talking about Rome. So when we talk about this woman as the Roman Catholic Church, it shouldn't be a mystery. It shouldn't be something that's like, oh, that's a surprise. The question is, what happens to the pure woman? 
She's persecuted. She's driven underground. What happens? It says, the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that she should feed her there, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And this is the same 1,260 days of Revelation chapter 13, the same 42 months that um, is described in, in another place in Revelation. It's the same time, times, and a half a time that we find in Daniel chapter 7. Um, all of these things are relating to the exact same period of time. So the question is, where did they go? Where did they go? Well, some hid in the mountains of northern Italy, and these true followers of Jesus that said they'll follow the Lamb wherever He goes, they're called the Valdo or the Waldensians. And they, when the church says you can't have the Bible in your own language, they keep a translation of the Bible in their own language. It, it's uh, Some of them hid on the British Isles, like Patrick of Ireland and um, Columba, who both continued to keep the Sabbath all of their lives. I find it interesting that St. Patrick's Day is a Catholic holiday when Patrick was anything but in favor of the Roman Church. Um, some hid in North Africa, like groups in Ethiopia who kept the Sabbath for 1,500 years until the Roman Empire found them and destroyed them. Bible prophecy said there would be two women, two churches, an impure woman on the throne of the Western Roman Empire and a pure woman who had to go into hiding. And when we look at history, we find that exact same story is fulfilled. There are only two. Those are the only options that we get. Two. So let me ask you something. If there's just two options, two different women, then um, where did we get all the denominations that we have today? Again, I'm not going to go into tons of detail because we don't have that much time. So really quickly, in the 1300s, God raises up this guy named John Wycliffe. And uh, John Wycliffe translates the Bible into the common language, and it's, uh, well, the church doesn't like him. And so when he dies, they dig up his bones and they grind them up and burn them and throw them into, the, into, the, into a river, the river Sin, I believe. In the 1400s, there's a guy named Jean Hus, and uh, he says the Bible is the only rule for Christian faith. This church tradition thing, that doesn't do it for him. He says the Bible and the Bible only. And then you have in the 1500s, a guy named Martin Luther who reads his word, reading the Bible, finds that the just shall live by faith. And while all of the church is saying, well, it's, it's not a big deal, just, uh, just pay this uh, little bit of money and you can get your, your parent out of purgatory or you can have your sin confessed. In fact, at one point, you could come and buy an indulgence for a sin you hadn't committed yet. So if you wanted to, to steal something, you could come and buy an indulgence and you'd be forgiven for that theft you were about to commit. So one guy came up to Tetzel, um, bought the indulgence for stealing, and then stole all of Tetzel's money. That is innovative, right? In the 1600s, a guy named Roger Williams became convinced that people needed freedom to live according to the dictates of their own conscience. And so he starts a new colony in Rhode Island, which becomes the, uh, the first to break away from the British colony or from the British crown, rather. And, and he also learns from early English Baptists, um, and he started to baptize people the way that Jesus did, by immersion. Speaking of English Baptists, they also made another remarkable discovery that uh, when you turn the pages um, of the Bible in the 1600s, you find that the, the Sabbath is on Saturday. And so from then on, and even today, you have Seventh-day Baptists who keep the Bible Sabbath. One by one, beginning in the dark ages, God begins to wake people up. 
and, and open the pages of Scripture and remind them where God had, had um, originally been leading. In the 1700s, you have John Wesley. And uh, John says, wait, the Bible, is, the Bible is very practical. Let's follow what the Bible says and show the world who God is by our life, by the way we live, bit by bit. And um, Proverbs 4.18 describes this process. It says, the path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day, brighter and brighter as the dawn as the dawn breaks. But what God wanted was a complete restoration, not just bits of truth here and there. And unfortunately, what, what happened is, as each reformer died, the people, they, they became more, more interested in the reformer than in the Word of God that they had pointed to. And so, you have um, Luther dies, and the Lutheran church is born. And you have Huss who dies, and the Hussites um, come out of that. John Calvin dies, and the result from his Christian institutes is the Reformed Church. Each, each reformer kind of pushing towards the Bible, but their, their followers stay stagnant where the reformer left them. By the time you get down to the 1700s, the Dark Ages are just about over. The 1260 days are about to end. In February of 1798, the French General Berthier marches into the city of Rome, takes the, the Pope captive, and, uh, and suddenly in the 19, uh, 1790s, you have this shoe cobbler by the name of William Carey who launches a worldwide movement. In 1802, the Bible Society w- was born. And the Bible went from being in 67 languages to being in over 2,000 languages almost overnight. So you have this explosion of Bible printing, an explosion of worldwide missions from William Carey, and you have this, um, well, you have this fascination with the subject of Daniel and Revelation. In fact, Daniel at the very end, the, the angel tells Daniel to seal up the book because it's for the time of the end. And as the time of the end is approaching, that, that transition is happening, guess what people start to study? the book of Daniel. And this matches, it matches Bible prophecy, one thing after the other. I mean, it's, stud- it's stunning what is happening. And in, in the early 1800s, you have the birth of a, a worldwide second Advent movement. People are starting to read the Bible and say, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. And they're excited because they know this is the time of the end and that Jesus is just around the corner. And in the midst of this group um, over 50 different groups all around the world were studying this subject. And one of those groups right here in North America um, was uh, led by a Baptist preacher by the name of William Miller. Today, people make fun of him because he made a, a, a mistake. He was studying Bible prophecy, and he concluded that Jesus would come in a particular time, and he set a date. And does the Bible say that it's a bad idea to set dates? Yes. But when you, when you look at what he wrote you can see that he was an, it was an honest mistake. He misunderstood something in the Bible, and he kind of made a best guess that he could about what was going on, and the result was he, he missed the, the interpretation. But it sparked uh, a group of people to study the Bible and to really dive in and say, what did God say? 
And as the Christian world moved through the 1700s and the 1800s, they could see all these things that were happening. They heard about the huge earthquake in Lisbon in 1755. They saw the dark day in 1780, and they saw the unbelievable falling of the stars in 1833, and they knew that all of the signs of the end were here, and we're in that time of the end. You know what they… when, when you look at all of these stories of Christians… What you find is that if you come to the Bible with an honest heart and you read the whole book, you read, you read it in context and you read deeply, you're going to get to where Jesus wanted us to get. You're going to get unity. And out of all these studies, out of the interest in Bible prophecy, a last day movement was reborn. <laughs> reborn because a remnant isn't something that... that uh, that starts, a remnant is something that's left over, right? A remnant is what remains. And so I say reborn, right on time, exactly as described in the book of Revelation in chapter 12, verse 17. And the dragon was wroth, was angry with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. At the end of time, before Jesus comes, the woman is prophesied to come out of the wilderness there's still a remnant, a group of people that are faithful to God's Word and say, we want to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have the testimony of Jesus, and they keep the commandments of God. And so, where can we find this group of people? How do we know where they are? Here's a, another description in Revelation 14. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are the, they that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. Just like Noah, just like Abraham, they believe. And, and faith is something that's active, right? When Abraham was asked to do something by God, his faith was demonstrated in his walking. When Moses, not Moses, when Noah was asked to do something by God, his faith was demonstrated in his building, right? When we are asked to do something by God, our faith is demonstrated in our actions. You can't have faith without following. You can't have love without obedience, in Revelation 12, it says that uh, not only do they keep the commandments of God, but they have the testimony of Jesus. And Revelation 19.10 makes that very clear. The testimony of Jesus equals, if this is a math equation, it couldn't be clear, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And in Revelation 22, you discover that the people who have the testimony of Jesus have a gift, a, a spiritual gift of prophecy. And so what the Bible is saying that all God's gifts, all of the gifts of the Spirit for the mission of the church are going to be poured out on God's people at the end of time, including the gift of prophecy. Joel 2.28 says, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. So one thing is clear about this remnant group, this people of God that follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They keep the commandments of God and they have all the gifts of the Spirit. And that includes prophecy, which, which really should make you shudder just a little bit, because there, there is an expectation that there will be false prophets. You've got to be careful with this subject. The Bible is the only rule of Christian faith and practice. And, and if anybody, I don't care if they call themselves a prophet, disagrees with the Bible, then, then they are not from God. So, the Bible is our rule of Christian faith and practice, but this group of people will have every gift of the Spirit to do the work of taking the gospel to the world. 
So we found a couple characteristics. They keep the commandments of God. They have the testimony of Jesus. And we, we mentioned in Revelation 18 that this is a global message. And so a global movement with a special message is also there. Um, the Bible tells us what they preach in Revelation 14. It says, I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. How many nations, tribes, tongues, and peoples? Everyone. This is a worldwide movement with a special message, and it includes this one, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give Him glory for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him who made the heavens and the earth, the seas and the springs of waters. So this group of people keep the commandments of God. They have the gift of prophecy, the, all the spiritual gifts. They are a wor worldwide movement, and they have a special message, a message of judgment, partly because Jesus is coming soon, but also because that judgment began in 1844. We talked about that um, earlier on in this, when we studied Daniel chapter 8. And if you found one group preaching these things, the one that says judgment is here and the other that says worship him who made, the creator God, then uh, that would be a, maybe a stunning coincidence or what I would suggest is a fulfillment of prophecy. Revelation 14, 8 to 10 says, another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen that great city because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Then a third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or in his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Who are these people? Who are the ones that are preaching this message? Notice what we found. They're a worldwide scope. They preach about the judgment. They, they preach about the worshiping the creator God. Um, they come out of Babylon and they preach this message that says, beware of the beast. If you look very carefully throughout history and all over the planet, there's really only one group of people that meet all of these qualifications. Now, I just want to say before I say anything else, there is no church, never has been a church that will ever save you. And there's no church that's perfect, never has been a church that has anybody but imperfect humans in it. When God had a remnant that came back from Babylon, they weren't perfect. When God had Noah, he wasn't perfect. Just remember that story about getting drunk after, you know, like, he made, made some mistakes, right? And, and then you have, uh, you have Abraham, and remember him lying about his, his wife? And, and you've got the Israelites, and they bumbled their way through, right? So when we talk about a remnant, we're not talking about a people of, of perfection. We're talking about a people who've been redeemed by Jesus. And who say, no matter how many times they fall on their face, they say, Jesus, we want you to be the king of our lives, and we want to follow you wherever you go. So, in the 1800s, after all these prophetic signs start falling into place, after the Dark Ages suddenly come to a close, something amazing happens. All those people who are studying Bible prophecy, um, they, they agree to toss aside tradition and to study God's Word and to, to take it for what it says. There's one movement. No, I, I shouldn't say that. There are two movements in the end of time. Two movements. One of them are unified Christians that follow the Lamb, and the other one, another worldwide movement that follow the beast. One of them is an exact match of Revelation 13, and the other is an exact match of Revelation 14. 
And, and the only thing that we can find in history is the Seventh-day Adventist church. Now, there are a bunch of churches that started in the 1800s, um, but one of them rejects Jesus as, the, as, as uh, the Son of God. Another one has, well, let's just say prophecy that's not true and contradicts God's Word, so they don't qualify. Others don't keep the commandments. Others um, don't have the testimony of Jesus. Others don't have a clue about prophecy. Just because a church started in the 1800s doesn't mean it's God's remnant. And what we want to look for is a group of people that say yes to Jesus and keep saying yes to Jesus and never stop studying His Word to understand what Jesus wants from us. And when you look at the Seventh-day Adventist Church, you find some pretty cool things. It is the fastest-growing worldwide movement. Over 3,000 people a day are joining the Seventh-day Adventist Church. 80% of people in the Seventh-day Adventist Church come from some other walk of life. They're not born as Seventh-day Adventists because the Bible says they're going to be coming out of Babylon. And, and that's what we find is actually true. And, and these are people who are determined that they're going to be unified on God's Word alone. And let me assure you, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist, and there is a lot, of, a lot of discussion, not because we want to argue with each other, but because we want to follow truth. Nobody's following Jason Worf. Nobody's following some prophet at the head of, of, of a church. Nobody's following the president of anything. What we're all doing is saying, what does the Bible say? Take me deeper, Lord Jesus. I want to follow the Lamb. Two global movements, the beast and the woman who sits on it from Revelation 13 and 17, or the people who stand with Jesus and follow him wherever he goes. One of them carries the message of Revelation 13, the other one, the message of Revelation 14. And I want to say, I want to say this humbly, and, and I, I hope that you hear no arrogance at all. I believe that God has called each one of you to be here. And I think that you know he's been working on your heart from a long time before tonight. And before you ever got that flyer in the mail or saw Facebook ad or whatever it was, um, God's been working on your heart to lead you to study his word and to follow the lamb wherever he goes. And right now he's, he's knocking on our heart's door. And I just want to say the temptation to follow my own religion, the dictates of my own heart, that's a real, a real uh, challenge that we all face throughout our whole life. Over and over and over again, the, the, the devil's going to try to deceive or get us off track or put a tradition into the mix. And we have to keep saying, the lamb, I'm going to follow the lamb wherever he goes. Show me your truth from your word, God. Some generation was bound to see the fulfillment of these prophecies. And I'm excited that it happens to be you and me. In Revelation 18.4, John says, I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, that you may not be partakers of her sins and that you receive not of her plagues. This is the voice of God. This is not my voice. This is God saying, if you're in Babylon, come out. Follow the lamb. Don't follow the dragon anymore. Some years ago, a preacher in Zimbabwe, a young man, went to a town to share the gospel, and the town said, don't come back. If you do, we're going to kill you. And so he went home, and he thought about it. And the longer he thought about it, the more he realized, I can't stop preaching about Jesus. And so he went back to that town one more time. 
his friends found his body in the streets. And when they went back to clean out his home and, and take care of his things, they found this letter that I want to read to you. I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talk, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotion, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean in His presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer, and I labor with power. My face is set, my step is fast, my goal is heaven, and my road is narrow, my way rough. My companions are few, my guide reliable, my mission clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not be a coward in the face of sacrifice, hesitant in the presence of the enemy, pander at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ." I am the disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all I know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. What about you? Will you have a clear banner? Will you say, I believe in Jesus and I will follow him all the way? Tonight, I want to give you a chance to respond. And I want to, I've already said from the very beginning, I want to, I want to do this with humility. Go ahead and, and, and pass out those cards, Harry. I want to do this with humility, but I want to make, ask you to make a decision. And I, I want to say this, God is not asking you to make a decision on something you don't quite understand. If what I've shared tonight is like crystal clear, you see it from God's Word, then please make a decision. If there's something that you don't quite understand or you feel like there's maybe some obscure things that, that you need clarification on, then, then please don't just jump in and say, yes, I want to be part of God's remnant people, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, because that's going to be on this list on, on one of these options. What I want you to do is I want you to say yes to Jesus as far as He has opened the way for you and made it clear in your mind. So take this card, and and the first one says, I choose to use the Bible only as my guide to the truth. I think all of us can say yes to this, but I just want to underscore it for one moment. When we say the Bible only, what we're saying is that God's Scripture is the preeminent revelation of God, and that nothing comes above God's Word. Nothing. Nobody that's claimed to be a prophet, nobody that's claimed to be a Messiah, nobody that's claimed to be anything is going to speak a word that contradicts God's word in in the Bible, and and it would be true. It has to agree with God's word or it can't be true. That's what we're saying when I say, I choose to use the Bible only as my guide to truth. For thousands of the years, the devil has been saying, did God really say? 
and he's been trying to twist truth. And so what I'm asking you to, to do tonight is to say, yes, I believe God's Word is true, and I will follow it. And the second option says, I choose to become part of God's last-day remnant people. If there's one thing that the Bible makes clear, it's that in the end, before Jesus comes, there are these two choices, Revelation 13, Revelation 14. Where do you want to be? Where do you want to be? I believe the, the Seventh-day Adventist Church is an exact match for what the, the Scriptures refer to as the people that follow the Lamb, the, the remnant of God, the people that carry the message and prepare the world for the second coming. Tonight, if you can see that, if that makes sense to you, then please check that box. And the third option says, um, I would like to follow Jesus in baptism. If you haven't been baptized by immersion and you feel convicted that that's where God wants you to go, then check that box. And fourth, I know that we've talked about a lot of things, and if you have questions, just check that box that says, I'd like a personal visit. If you're not sure, like, where in the world I just went tonight, because we covered a lot of territory, right? If you're not quite sure, and you need, you need a reminder, and you need to go through this before you make a decision about anything, check that box and say, I'd like a personal visit, and we'll, we'll talk through those things. Then jot your name down on that card, and I'm going to ask the ushers they're over there thinking about something. <laughs> you got the wrong cards. It, it, it should say the return of the woman on it, yes. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. And you know, I think, I think the, the, the devil likes to get in the machinations here, doesn't he? <laughs> I'm sorry for the confusion. I'm up here all passionately talking and you're just like, what in the world is he talking about? (laughs) So I choose to use the Bible only as my guide to truth. That's number one. Is that what you're seeing on your card right now? Okay, good. Just got to get them out of their plastic shell. Now, I'd like to say something while they're finishing handing that out. And maybe you've already written your things and you're done. But I just want to say this. I did not start this seminar um, a month ago because I have to have more people sitting in the pews of my church. I hope you understand that. My, My whole goal is not to recruit. My whole goal is to take the message of God to the world. The Bible says that that we should go into all the world and preach the gospel, and the gospel includes the story in Revelation, the story of what's going to happen at the end of time, and I want people to know that. And, And I believe that the end result of that message is that, well, the reason, the thing I've chosen is to be part of a movement that takes that gospel, the truth that judgment has come, and to worship the Creator God to the world. That's the choice I've taken, and I, that's what I'm inviting you to take. Um, if, it, if it makes sense to you, and if you'd like a visit, um, if you want to understand more and, and you feel like there's, there's more that you need to explore, then just uh, jot that on there and put your name on it, and then hand it to the middle, and uh, the ushers will pick it up. Can you guys do the pickup thing too? <laughs> We're all organized here. <laughs> I really appreciate um, 
Harry and, and his uh, helpers. He has been so faithful every night. Till tonight. Till tonight. <laughs> no, even tonight. Not at all. All right. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, I may have presented one of the most controversial subjects of all of prophecy tonight. We don't want there to be just one or two options. We want there to be any number of options. We like, we like to have lots of different stuff on our stores, lots of different restaurants to go to, lots of different options. And what you've presented in, in, the, in prophecy is that there's only two. There's the people who follow the Lamb and there's the people who are deceived by and follow the dragon. Lord, we don't want to be deceived. We don't want to have any, any deceit in our mouth. We want to speak truth from your word, and we want to follow Jesus wherever he goes. And I just pray that, that as we make those decisions and as we explore your word, um, that, you would, that you would guide us. And, and Lord, especially pray for those who are um, either checking that box tonight that says that they'd like to be part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and, or, or maybe that they're still trying to figure this out and they've got questions. I pray that you would be in, in their experience right now, and you would confirm this, not just by my words, but by their own study of Scripture. You promised that you would send us your Spirit and that He would lead us into all truth. Not that Jason would lead us into all truth, but the Holy Spirit would. And so we ask for your Holy Spirit and we ask to be led by you. In Jesus' name, amen.